0: Let's all rise out of respect for the Word of God and hear the Word of God read. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 42. Uh, But let me remind you, before we start the reading, of the context of this passage. It's on the day of Pentecost, at the very end, the very climax of the Apostle Peter's sermon. You'll remember on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and was poured out upon the disciples and they spoke in other languages so that many people who were in Jerusalem from foreign lands could hear them speaking the mighty works of God in their presence. And then Peter began to speak and he reminded them of the prophecy of Joel where God said he would pour out his spirit upon his people. And then he quoted the Psalms to prove that Jesus Christ, whom they had crucified, was the promised Messiah. And at the very end of his sermon, he said, let all of the house of Israel therefore surely know that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And now the words of our passage. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, "Save yourselves from this crooked generation." So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of God. Be to God. Amen, you may be seated.) <clears throat> Well, today, it, of course, it was my great privilege to uh, be able to baptize my own granddaughter. Uh, she was marked with a sign of God's covenant promises to her. Her parents have just promised God that they would set before Sperry a godly example, pray with and for her, and teach her the doctrines of our holy religion, strive to bring her up, in what Paul calls the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now you can see already just from these vows that they take that when we baptize a child, a child who is too young to repent, too young to exercise personal faith in Christ, we have not only a certain view that, of course it's right to baptize infants like this, uh, these vows themselves presuppose A certain view of the child herself. That is, we don't view the child as someone outside of the faith, outside of God's covenant, as someone who only after reaching a certain age, you might say, uh, would it be right to exhort to repentance and faith, but as one who is, as she grows, already fit to be nurtured and admonished as a believer would be. We view her as having a right not only to baptism, but to all the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ. She is, if you will, an heiress. An heiress who needs to embrace and live out her heiress status, but an heiress nonetheless, with the privileges accorded to that status as well as the responsibilities, I've often wondered um, what it must have been like for someone like Prince uh, Prince William or Prince Harry to grow up in the royal family. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you just you knew you were you were different. Um, reading, think of reading English history as as a, a royal family member. Uh, you are actually part of that story. Uh, I don't know much about how they were educated, but I'm pretty sure it was not like I was educated or like a commoner would be educated, right? Uh, All through life, they're being, you might say, groomed for their future position. Um, Okay, Prince Charles has been groomed for a very, very long time uh, for his position. But I I wonder what, what, what that was like. Uh, to, to know that someday I will come into my inheritance and be a king or a prince. Not everybody gets that training, the kind of training they had, the best medical, uh, medical attention, the best uh, education. Um, not everyone has a claim to that. Growing up as a covenant child should be different too. A covenant child will grow up aware of the promises and blessings promised her or him as well as the responsibilities. I recently overheard uh, two prominent Christian leaders who were having a conversation. Uh, They were talking about their families and they got to their grown children and uh, we're talking about two, each one had a son who had not come to faith. And of course they were, as Christian parents, they they longed for for their, their grown sons to come to faith. But listening to them, it was almost as if they were bragging about how free-thinking and independent uh, these young men were. And it struck me that they must view their children as basically uh, just like children outside the church. Uh, Just like children in the world around them uh, with no real substantial advantages or expectation. Now how do we view? How should we view children in the church? When I say we here, I want to make plain, I'm not just talking about children or, or parents who with young children. Um, <clears throat> some of us are unmarried. Some of us are married with no children. Some of us have children that are grown and, and moved away. Um, <clears throat> but we all have a part in the raising up of the next generation, don't we? Uh, you as a congregation just took a vow, a vow I almost forgot. You took a vow uh, to assist in the godly training of this child, Sperry. Um, <clears throat> and let me just say, as, a, as someone who's raised in the church and who raised children in the church, um, children notice when other church members are not living godly lives. They know it. Uh, so it really does, uh, our li- all our lives affect the children of the church and how they grow. Uh, you don't have to go, even don't have to teach Sunday school or do the nursery. Your lives are affecting them. Although it would be good to teach Sunday school and do the nursery. I don't want to dampen any enthusiasm here. <clears throat> so how do we think about children of the church as strangers to the promises of God or as heirs to those promises? as outsiders until they make a free and independent decision for Christ as, let's say, teenagers, or as insiders as part of the visible church, the covenant community. A main point that I I would like to make today is that baptism of infants is not a standalone idea. Yes, we believe it's biblical, but it's not isolated from how we view children, the children of believers, and how we treat them both before and after they are baptized. It implies much more than simply the ritual itself. It implies something about how we believe God views the child as an heir of the promises of God. Now, now first, I, I do want to take a little bit of time just to talk about why we think this particular passage in Acts, among many others, grounds the practice of baptizing a baby like Sperry et al. Uh, We can't go through all the details of this passage, but uh, someone told me after looking at this passage, this could be used for believer baptism too. And that's true. Because uh, look at all the adults who are baptized in this passage. Uh, There is also an exhortation to repent here. We remind you of Peter's words, Verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for the, all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise here is specifically, if you wonder what is the promise, he says, the promise is for you and for your children. The promise specifically here is the promise of the Holy Spirit. As Peter had just said in verse 33 of the passage, speaking of Jesus, Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So you see what's happened that day, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus has been been enthroned as king on high at the right hand of God. He has received himself the, the promised Holy Spirit then to distribute the Holy Spirit as he sees fit upon his people. You remember again the prophecy of Joel, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Twice in that passage he mentions the pouring out of his spirit. And so Peter, the promise Peter refers to when he says, for the promise is to you, is at least the Holy Spirit. And though the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that day, remember that was the day of Pentecost, that day it was outward and miraculous, speaking in tongues, normally the promised Spirit comes upon us in a less outward and public way. How? Well, you know, through regeneration, conviction of sin, the washing of our hearts clean of sin, as we've spoken of before. As the baptism, and as the water in baptism depicts, Peter of course also calls on his hearers to repent in verse thirty-eight, and an infant cannot do that. Clearly, Peter addressed those who were old enough in his audience to understand, and who Luke has, says had already been cut to the heart. They've been cut to the heart by the message. But his call to be baptized seems to be not limited. To only those who could repent. This is because he changes the form of the verb. I know Brad's here studying Greek or is about to study Greek. So I'm just saying this. uh, The form of the verb uh, to be baptized changes. It's repent you, repent ye, and let each one of you be baptized. For the promise is to you and your children, as well as those still far off whom uh, we we know to be ultimately the Gentiles who will come to faith as well. And, of course, after they come to faith, the Gentiles, they too, the promises will be to them and to their children as well. Now, if Peter understood the promise and baptism to pertain only to those who were of age, let's say older teenage children, those who could hear him, understand his words, and by acts of the will repent and believe well, then he wouldn't have had to mention children, would he? All they would have had to say is, those who can hear my voice and understand, repent, and believe. But on the other hand, Peter's specific mention of to you and to your children, well, that evokes a great number of Old Testament covenant passages, doesn't it? And it makes perfect sense within the context, the long history of God's dealings with his people And this is the point, because Peter's hearers that day were Jews and Jewish proselytes who had become familiar with, familiar all their lives, with that long history of God's dealing with his people. Considering that long long history not only supports the baptizing of small children, it also tells us a very great deal about how God views our children and our families. Uh, So let's talk about uh, uh, a little bit about the children, about children in the plan of God. Of course, many of you will already be thinking of that great uh, foundational promise given to Abraham back in Genesis 17. And here's how it goes: Genesis 17: 7 through 12, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Skipping to verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. But as foundational as this is for us, and we we claim this uh, as a foundation for covenant baptism, infant baptism, uh, to understand more of God's purpose for our children, I think we really need to start at the very beginning, even before the Abrahamic covenant. Let's think back, if you want to flip there, that's okay, but uh, let's think back all the way to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 27, at the creation of man in his image. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, you see right from there that, God wanted what? He had a plan for what? He had a plan for filling the earth with his image bearers. Now, if you think about it, if that was God's plan, to fill the earth with with those who bore his image, why didn't he just create tens of billions of people right then and there? That's a very odd plan, isn't it? That He wanted to fill the earth with his image bearers. And how did he do it? By creating one couple and telling them, be fruitful and multiply. In order for Adam and Eve to fulfill this mandate, what would they have to do? They would have to have children. So you see right from the very beginning the centrality of childbearing and child nurturing, which is all of our duty. Um, In God's plan. Now, something happened to that image, didn't it? When Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God in us was damaged. Did that then thwart God's mission, God's intent, to fill the earth with his image bearers who give him glory? No, it did not. It just meant that from then on, his his image would have to be restored. Restored. Renewed, There would have to be a plan of redemption so that we are redeemed and renewed after the image of Christ, right? This would be accomplished not by Adam and Eve themselves. God promised it would happen through one of their children, one of their seed, an offspring who would crush the serpent's head. And right from the first, right from the first, it's interesting, we see a separation among mankind, manifesting itself through the separate destinies of two families. Two families, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Remember, Seth was the replacement child for Abel, whom Cain killed. While Cain's line produced great sinners like Lamech, who boasted about killing a man. When Seth has a son named Enosh, Moses says, at that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. Seth's descendant Enoch, we're told, walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 5, 24. This family, the same line produced Noah, whose father said when he named him, out of the ground which the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, And from the toil of our hands, here's a family looking for redemption from God's curse. God established and reestablished his covenant with Noah and his family. And through these eight people, he replenished the earth. God worked through families, the line of Seth, then narrowed down to the line of Noah, then the line of Shem, one of Noah's sons, and then the line of Abraham. Now we're back to Abraham and the covenant. Now what was it about that family? What was it about that line? True religion must have been inculcated in those homes. This phrase, men began to call upon the name of the Lord, the calling upon the name of the Lord is a, is, a, is a phrase that's repeated several times throughout Genesis associated with the line of Abraham, the line of Seth and the line of Abraham. Again in Genesis seventeen seven, And I will establish my covenant with, between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so circumcision was to be applied to the offspring, not once they were old enough to say, yes, I love God, and I want to be in that covenant with him. They were circumcised as infants to place a mark on them for life. Now I want to emphasize that applying the sign of the covenant to his infant male offspring uh, was not the only it was not the end of Abraham's responsibility. It was just the beginning. And it implied something here again, I want you to see something it implied something as to his raising of his children. <clears throat> Soon after God spoke those words of establishing the covenant, with Abraham, he appeared to him again by the oaks of Mamre. This is in Genesis 18. On his way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord said this, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, did you notice that? It was not just I've commanded him to circumcise his male offspring. The covenant duties of parents to command and teach and the covenant privileges of children to be commanded and be taught these things That did not end with circumcision. Along with the sign of whether it be circumcision or baptism goes a certain approach to the children of the covenant as fit subjects of instruction in the way of the Lord. Paul Paul will call it in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This implies that the child has the ability and the status to be treated that way. Now, we don't have time to go through the rest of the Bible, all the Old Testament promises that are similar, but with all of God's covenants from this point on, the family and the generations uh, are central in each one. Now, we come to the question, though, what about the new covenant? Uh, Because it could be imagined that uh, maybe this changed in the new covenant, this arrangement with the children of believers. One could imagine that since, since Jesus came, and since the true children of Abraham, we find out, the true st- children of Abraham are really spiritual. Uh, remember John the Baptist saying, don't say to yourselves, we're children of Abraham. God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. And Paul says that uh, it, those who are of faith are the true children of Abraham. And so we might think that the covenant sign should no longer be applied to infants or young children. The genealogical line then is broken at this point. But, beloved, the true children of Abraham were always spiritual. Circumcision was always a matter of the heart, not the flesh. Yet the promises were still extended to those covenant children as infants and signified to them by the covenant sign. And while the new covenant was put in effect with Jesus, keep in mind, I found this pretty, very interesting uh, when, when approaching this sermon, uh, keep in mind that the new covenant, though inaugurated by Jesus, was predicted many times in the Old Testament. Uh, and when it is, it often is made plain that children of believers will still be included. I just want to share a couple of these with you. Uh, the earliest of these intimations of a, of a new covenant might be way back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the last of the books of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 6. Here Moses, as Israel is, is about to enter the promised land for the first time, Moses is given a prophecy of the future for Israel. Moses predicted, even at that early time, that Israel, after enjoying the blessings of the land of promise, would one day... Rebel and God would cast them out into exile and undergo the curse. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, so he's thinking about a time even beyond the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children. And obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now there it is that circumcision of the heart is what Christians today have experienced. What Paul says we have in Romans 2 and in Colossians 2. But even as far this far back when predicting the time of the new covenant the concern was for you and for your children. Just one more passage, one more prophetic passage. This one happens after the nation of Israel has returned from the curse of exile. The prophet Zechariah spoke about a greater return from exile, a greater ingathering of God's people, which we know now applies to the age of the church. Zechariah 10, 8 and 9. God says, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. Here again, in predicting the new covenant realities, the redeemed and the children of the redeemed are mentioned. And indeed, when Jesus came, what was his attitude toward covenant children? Well, when the disciples wanted to rebuke parents for bringing their children, daring to bring them to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them, Luke even specifies that there were infants being brought to him. What does he do? Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. Mark's account says he took them in his arms and blessed them. And so back to our passage in Acts 2. When the new covenant is realized, and when Peter stands up on that day, the day of Pentecost, to announce the fulfillment of all the God's promises in Christ, how could it be any other way? The promise is for you and for your children. The promise, the promise of washing away of sin and renewal by the Holy Spirit is for you and your children entirely in keeping with the prophetic announcement and in keeping with God's continuous purpose and dealings with his people from the very beginning. And this is why Paul in writing to a mostly Gentile church in 1 Corinthians 7 not a group of Jewish converts but mostly Gentiles can say to them in 1 Corinthians 7:14 For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy According to Paul God views the children of believers, even of only one believer in the household, differently from the way he views other children. This is because of his gracious covenant. They are not, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, as Paul says in Ephesians, but they are holy to him. Now, obviously, they're not holy because they've repented or believed. God reckons them holy, Due to the relationship that he has with at least one of the parents. And that relationship is called in the Bible a covenant. Finally, Luke goes on to record in the narrative of Acts what actually happened in early preaching contexts. As the gospel was brought to Gentiles, whole households are baptized. And while infants or young children are not specifically mentioned in these household baptisms, they didn't have to be. If something had fundamentally changed so that baptism now was unlike circumcision and not to be extended to infants or young children, but only those who were old enough to make a credible profession of faith, well then surely Luke would have not used such ambiguous language as she was baptized with, all, with her household, speaking of Lydia, or the Philippian jailer, and he was baptized at once with all who belonged to him. Uh, he would certainly specify and not leave it in that, that way. But on the other hand, this is exactly the kind of language you would use if the promises made to Abraham and his seed had been confirmed to believers in Christ and extended to their seed as well. It is covenant language. Now, how is the promise realized to covenant children? Today, Sperry Love received baptism, the sign of the covenant. The Holy Spirit, forgiveness, and life eternal are promised to her. She already has this promise. Baptism does not confer the promise to her. Baptism confirms the promise to her. It is true that in order for these realities promised and signified in baptism to be fully realized in her she will have to re- embrace she will have to embrace them personally through repentance and true faith. You know even an heir to royal dignity can choose to defect from his inheritance. I guess Prince Harry did that to some degree, did he not? Uh, Renouncing his uh, some royal duties, All right, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, that's uh, a lot I don't know about that situation. So I'll use a different illustration. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents gave me a United States savings bond. Now they said that if I took that savings bond to the bank, I have, it was worth maybe $18 or something like that. But if I waited till a certain maturation date, and it was years off. Uh, it would be worth $25. 25 So I waited, and the years went by, and when the maturation date came, I'd forgotten all about the U.S. savings bond uh, and where I'd put it. I'd forgotten about it. I, I, guess, I guess that U.S. savings bond just didn't mean all that much to me. Uh, maybe my parents weren't always reminding me about it or what it would mean or what I could do with the $25 or how much, uh, why they gave it to me because they loved me or anything like that. I, I, just, I just kind of forgot about it. Uh, it is possible for an heir to take lightly what is promised and even to reject it. It is possible that some covenant children will never claim what has been promised to them in baptism remember Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge but that does not invalidate the promise itself or the sign of the promise does it years later I was rummaging around the stuff I would left at my parents and guess what I found the US Savings Bond it was still worth $25 it was still valid. Some covenant children come to faith only later in life, after it seems like they've walked away from the God who loved them with an everlasting love. Sometimes this happens in a more or less dramatic way. But God may also choose to regenerate a covenant child from very early. Remember John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That may be unusual, but it tells us that God is able. He is not not prevented by the age of a child. For children reared in Christian homes, their conversions may look very gradual. After all, as children of the covenant, they will learn the sound of their Savior's name before they can even say it. They will learn to take that name upon their lips as soon as they learn to speak. At home and in church, they will hear the word of God read and preached. They will be taught how to pray. They will witness the godly lives, not perfect, but godly lives of their parents and of other church members. They will learn that their own misbehavior is not just innocent childishness, but rises from a heart in rebellion against a holy God, the one who made them and takes care of them. And when they're forgiven by their parents or siblings or schoolmates, they'll be taught that the only basis for true forgiveness is the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. When they turn in repentance and faith to their Savior, even if it happens a thousand times over, their faith, though the size of a mustard seed, will increase. I was reminded recently of a scene from C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian. After a long period of separation, Lucy once again encounters Aslan. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. A child's faith may start small and childlike, but if it's true faith, it will expand to accommodate their growing understanding of who Jesus is. As this happens, her baptism will become to her not just a sign, but also a seal. A seal that is a vehicle of assurance A means of grace. Each time our children see and reflect upon baptism, their own or someone else's, every time they and every time we witness a baptism, the truth of forgiveness of sins will be visibly portrayed before our eyes. Just as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so surely are our sins washed away by the blood and spirit of Christ so may it be for these children, and so for us. For as adults, whether we were baptized in infancy or in adulthood, may this visible act of baptism today be both a sign and a seal. May it bring to our hearts, to your hearts, a fuller sense of the love that Christ has for you. For the promise is for you and for your children, And even to those far off, as many of the Lord, as the Lord our God will call to himself. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious and covenant-keeping God, we we honor, thank, and praise you for your promises, all of which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We ask that you would again visit us with your promises. With your blessing, cause your Holy Spirit to cleanse our hearts by faith each day and bring us one day to our final resting place with you uh, in fellowship with you, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.